Lab talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always more in store ya. Lab talk with Laura. Welcome to the 10th episode of Lab Talk with Laura. I'm your host, Laura Fatteruso. Today I'm joined by Trisha Andrew, who is an associate professor of chemistry and chemical engineering. She got her PhD from MIT in chemistry and electrical engineering. And her lab works on transforming commercial textiles and clothing into electronically active devices. Uh, some of the things that they've made are underwear ECG sensors, active heating clothing, charge storing t-shirts, thermoelectric wristbands, and textiles that transform small body motions into power. Very cool stuff. Thanks for joining us, Trisha. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Also joining as a guest today is Spencer Hollow, who is a postdoc in the Civil Engineering Department. He uh, is originally from Bath, Maine. He got his PhD from Northeastern University in Civil Engineering. And his research studies the structural failures of offshore wind turbines during extreme weather conditions. Thank you so much for joining us, Spencer. Thank you for having us. Also joining today as my co-host is comedian Kathy Lynch, who is also an economist. <laughs> thanks for having me, Laura. Yeah, thanks for coming, Kathy. Um, so we're going to start, start with Trisha. Uh, do you want to just go ahead and tell us about your research? So our lab, uh, as you described very well, this makes textile electronics, and we tend to look at articles of clothing and say can we put some kind of coating on it that makes it electronically active first of all to start and then can we actually design devices around that um, electronic functionality that integrates comfort wear and so gives you um, portable health monitoring for example or ways to generate energy while you're out camping or if you're a soldier in theater and ways to even start store that energy when you are again out in the field and so that's what usually my lab works on. And then my students tend to have uh, days when they have very creative ideas. And so right now we talked about making a textile speaker yesterday. Uh, so you could have a hoodie that has your thread actually acting as the, the speaker to, you know, you don't need to have headphones on. So we do kind of nonsense stuff like that once in a while too. That's so cool. <laughs> I think I would definitely buy that. <laughs> <laughs> so is there, um, so are these products that are currently being provided to a market, or is it all still in like R&D stage? So it, it uh, traverses the spectrum. So we're lucky enough, or I'm lucky enough to have attracted a bunch of really creative people in my lab. And so we have uh, a lot of things that we're just like, hey, it wouldn't be cool if, for example, speaker, uh, or if uh, we have some products that are actually in production and we started companies uh, or have licensed our technology to companies. And so the active heated gloves that we recently uh, demonstrated uh, we actually started a company uh, through UMass and through the Institute of Applied Life Sciences at, on UMass campus. Um, and our company is called Soliarn. And we just started that. And then we also license our technology to the Tata Foundation and MIT to actually make charge storage curtains um, for like third world countries. Wow. So. so you said some of the clothing would store energy. So it's like basically clothing that's a battery. That's right. So we make supercapacitors. So they're very similar to batteries. It just depends on how much energy it puts out and how fast. And a supercapacitor is sort of like a short burst of large energy and then it dies out. And then a battery is more sustained um, over a longer period of time. Um, most of the materials that we end up working with, um, I'll be honest, we wanted to make a battery to start off with, but most of the materials that we uh, 
end up working with in my lab, they're called soft electronic materials. So they are usually carbon-based polymers. So things that you find around like saran wrap, but they have small structural differences that actually make them electronically conductive. And those materials tend to have very, very, they're persnickety. They have very com uh, properties that are very, very specific to their uh, repeat unit and their chemical structure. And so once we were working with them, we found that we our devices were more supercapacitor-like in, in the sh kind of short burst large payoff at, okay. you know, kind of one giant flash, and then they kind of need to be recharged as opposed to a more sustained battery. But um, it turns out in a lot of portable applications. So for example, if you have a solar cell and you have, you're out camping and then you're just continuously harvesting a small amount of energy and you want to store it, um, a supercapacitor tends to work better with these indirect or um, unreliant sources of power like that as opposed to a battery because batteries usually also need a sustained current, for example, like your wall outlet. You're, mm. you're really not switching your power output through your wall that much. If, if you are, that's a different issue. Yeah. Um, and so <laughs> supercapacitors are better uh, in, in that sense anyways. So it's a small distinction, but technically we make supercapacitors, but they do store charge and they work well with uh, unreliable or small power sources oh. like solar cells in the dark or we make another harvesting device called a triboelectric, and those are basically ways to take advantage of surface charge differences. So the classic idea is if you go to a science museum and you use one of those Van der Graaff generators, you put your hand on those giant balls of electricity and your hair kind of like spikes up, or if you rub your socked foot on your carpet and then you, know, you touch a conductor and you get a shock. So I mean, what you're doing basically is you're charging up the surface of your body in, in both of these cases. And because we are conductive, we're just socks of ions, as I like to call uh, humans. <laughs> <laughs> My students like that. They repeat that socks, a lot. Socks we're, of ions? We're socks of ions. Oh, we're basically like ion sacks. Um, <laughs> but we're not that conductive at the end of the day compared to a metal. And so mm. you're just charging up the surface of your skin. And then when you touch something a little bit more conductive, like a metal surface, then that charge very quickly leaves the surface of your body. And that's how you feel that static charge. So triboelectric device is saying, you know, we actually are always constantly charged and there's just no way of dissipating that charge really easily. And so if we actually make a device where we have a um, conductive wire that is flowing through your fabric, then you could actually collect, collect that charge. And so we made textiles that um, as you're just moving around during the day, um, you are, again, contacting and releasing at every fiber intersection of your T-shirt. And so we have conductive threads that run through the T-shirt that collect that charge. And so you have these solar harvesting devices that obviously work under sunlight. And then you have these triboelectric devices that just work from body motion, possibly in the dark. And so you have a multiple... Uh, multiple pronged energy source and then they work best with supercapacitors. Okay, so is it, um, wow, that's a lot to take in. Sorry. <laughs> no, it's really cool. Um, so you basically have taken that like static electricity we all see like when we like take our laundry out of the that's dryer right. that's and right. made that into like a power harvestable source. energy. That's right. that's right. Wow. And so that's the, where the motion activated one comes into play. Exactly. So it's not the motion itself. It's the fact that it's like coming in and out of contact with your body. Or itself Am too. I oh, yes. Okay. But yes, coming out and in contact with some other surface sometimes your body or can also be the other thread within the textile wow so what like gave you the idea to try to do that like what, what was the original inspiration to start down this path or like was there did you end up here by happenstance or like was this what you always wanted to do 
So I scientifically come from a community called Organic Electronics, which started, I would say, in the late 90s. And okay. it uh, produced a lot of uh, devices that we're familiar with right now, uh, including the OLED screens and, and phones and TVs. And it is a field that basically said, you know, can organic materials that are largely made out of carbon conduct electricity, first of all, and then can we make something productive out of it? And I worked for a person who actually uh, was part in the early 90s of, of a, the academic team that led to the commercial OLED screens that you find from LG um, and other Korean companies. And when I was uh, working with him in the late 2000s, uh, uh, the, the, the major goal of our research was to uh, progress that technology and say, can we now make these devices on crazy substrates because all of our devices are, that you're familiar with are, are built on glass effectively thin glass thick mm. glass but glass and they're rigid and they have their own issues but can we put these materials on something flexible or we started out thinking about plastic and then when i was with him we worked on paper devices and i really appreciated that train of thought uh to me it was uh revelatory in terms of thinking academically and intellectually because we were working on solar cells, actually, and in 2012, we did the study uh, of, you know, let's say I give you a solar cell and I ask you to pay me a dollar of it and you ask me back, you know, what sense of my dollar paying for what part of this solar cell? And our study surprisingly concluded that 80 cents of your dollar actually goes into paying for the glass on which the device is built up. Really? And about wow. uh, three cents goes into installing it because the glass is so heavy. And then, you know, about eight cents goes into the actual material that you use. And then the rest is just, you know, a, a converter or an inverter or whatever other scaffolding that you need to put into it. But 80 cents of your dollar just goes into just the glass that you build something on. Huh. And there's another, you know, about three cent hit there because the glass is so heavy now you actually need some very um, uh, uh, qualified contractors to you know buffet your roof so that your glass is not falling through your, mm. your roof in your house and so the it was to me at, at that time because uh, as a scientist you tend to get a little bit self you know reflective and, and hone in and say we need better materials and that was what i was thinking for a very long time and this was just mind-blowing that you know 80 cents is going into something that we take for granted that is just a window pane and it's actually very expensive to make large panes of glass and so we were making these paper devices and i started my lab and we were doing sort of the same thing i was translating my newfound knowledge to my first crop of students with this idea of let's make substrates uh, let's make devices on weird substrates and we we're just really playing around with paper uh to be perfectly honest with you with the knowledge that paper devices were cool and cute but not really transformative and i was having lunch with my colleagues so i started my career at the university of wisconsin madison so i was having lunch with with my colleagues there and and they were telling me oh, i think you're what you're doing is really cool it's great that you started out your students are really excited that's really nice to see a young professor starting this and then one person was like I think your paper devices are cute, but have you thought about fabrics? And I'm embarrassed to say that A, I had never ever thought about fabrics before, and B, I immediately realized that obviously I should have thought about fabrics mm. uh, because fabrics are everywhere, they're ubiquitous, and also they, if you make a electronically enabled fabric of whatever kind, they will be very useful in many applications, consumers, aesthetics, military, camping, right? And so it really was that uh, collegiality between colleagues and, and also me just having this idea of working with non-traditional, non-rigid substrates that came together. That's awesome. 
uh, you mentioned how you think a lot about uh, materials and uh, how to improve different processes through choosing different materials. Can you speak to how throughout your career you've seen greater access to new materials and in your lab do you um, do you source a lot of your materials or a lot of your sensors or a lot of your electronics um, get them from the internet is it easier to get them now than it used to be and how much of a role has that played in how you're able to even conduct the research that you're doing that's a really good question so I would say in the academic world uh, from the 2000s to even currently speaking there was a lot of federal funding um, and, and federal input in really developing a material set and it's still ongoing. And so when I started my career as a student in the early 2000s, there was definitely a materials limitation uh, to b progressing this technology or even thinking um, about how to go forward. Um, and because there is so much investment and so much research across the world, not just in North America, Right now, in the year 2017, 2018, I guess. What you said basically is true. We have now access just commercially to a whole suite of materials. And we find ourselves as researchers in the area, in the, in the realm of how do we take these Legos and use them usefully? Because now we have more Legos than we could actually use. And we're at a point where it's more important to figure out how you stack your Legos together as opposed to like making new blocks. Do you work, um, do you collaborate with the polymer science department here at UMass at all? Or are you mostly pulling polymers that have been made and developed by other people? So it's mostly polymers that we developed in, in oh, our lab. Yeah. Um, the polymer science department are filled with people who have uh, been either collaborators or mentors when I was a student. So kind of uh -huh. I know a lot of them uh, as being longstanding members of my community. But right now, we uh, I, I think it's really cool because our lab collaborates with computer scientists and nurses on, on campus here, to, which excites me a lot because we're actually using these with patients or we're talking about how to process the very noisy signals from our devices and actually learn how to use this in the real world. What, what's the collaboration with nursing? Right now we're working with a, uh, a really great uh, nurse and researcher named Elizabeth Henneman and she researches lung problems and fluid buildup in elderly patients right after surgery um, or if they have a lot of health problems and so these are basically just EKG sensors that are underwear that are comfortable to wear um, that hopefully an older population that's persnickety um, would want to wear this all the time and then these sensors allow us to uh, monitor whether fluid is building up in their lungs or not um, wow. in, in like a hospital common room after they've been discharged from the ICU or in an elder care facility. That's incredible. So what types of fabrics do you work with? Are we talking polyester blends, or do you ever do something with leather? I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about that. Uh, also a really good question. So it's been really fun for me because I um, never thought about this before our, our lab started working on this. And so the short answer to your question is we work with everything. And mm -hmm. that is, uh, I think, an advantage of uh, the process that we use because we are uh, substrate independent. And in terms of science, that's not always the case in, in terms of working with something. And so we could work with whatever you give us. So we could even take your, you know, I, I usually say I could, you could give me your second favorite shirt because you don't want to ruin your first favorite shirt. Oh, but maybe wow. you want to give me your second favorite shirt. And I simply coat it 
in the vapor phase and then give it back to you. It, it, it gives it, um, it remains undamaged, unchanged in terms of feel, wear, et cetera. And there's just a small pattern on it that's electrically conducting. And so uh, on a day-to-day -day basis, we work with uh, a huge array of things. And we basically find that for certain applications, some things are better than the others. So for active heating, we tend to work with very thick, fuzzy cotton yarns because they tend to hold in heat a lot better. But because they're fuzzy and disordered, they are not great at storing charge and creating surfaces. And so for our charge storage textiles, we often use single ply nylon threads or fishing line. Um, recently, one of the postdocs that works with me, he um, I think is the craziest one of, uh, of my bunch of really awesome <laughs> kids. And so he is pushing our lab into leather actually oh my god <laughs> and yeah. another weird you know like hair <laughs> and yeah he, he got some of his colleagues to donate like hair and I'm, I'm like i'm always like i'm always kind of like biting my nails when he presents his work to me i'm just like please What's let's happen? yeah I'm, all, I'm literally always telling him like let's not be weird <laughs> so I'm, like, the bad boy of the yeah. lab I, like <laughs> I feel like i'm seeing like a lab meeting slash project runway episode yeah. <laughs> in one. like uh, you're like i don't know that's really cool that you can take people's existing i feel like i like really perked up i'm like ooh, you could take yeah. one of my shirts yeah. and make it yeah. do this that's really cool is there, I'm curious, is there any like danger or hazard to like a, a material that's producing electricity or? So we usually uh, actually coat the surface with a, a plastic or insulating coating. So very much like the copper wires you find in buildings, you have the copper core and then a plastic insulator. And so that's all what we do if it's directly in contact with the human body. So mm -hmm. you're effectively in contact with a plastic coating of a copper wire. So it's the same amount of danger you do have a little bit of a capacitive interface and you know if you're walking through electromagnetic fields it's definitely going to like take uh, you know, manifest that it may interfere with your bluetooth signal on your phone or computer oh. um, so small things like that but things that you're already whether you're conscious of, of it or not used to with your phone um, in your pocket kind right, of stuff so right. nothing directly you know shorting or electrocuting you when you're wearing your t-shirt yeah so do you discourage people from like swimming in, in these types <laughs> of clothing <laughs> I haven't had to think about yeah. it but now that you mentioned it yes I think I should have that like disclaimer in all of our things put it on the label yeah, that's right. <laughs> Michael Phelps is light up speedo. <laughs> the hair thing made me think like you had brought up the speakers. Like it'd be cool if you could get like a weave that just like played music. <laughs> like your hair was actually playing music for you. Yeah. <laughs> what about washability? So that's one of the first things that we were thinking about before we ever went down the path of making devices. So we actually spent the first couple years of our lab developing this process, which we call vapor phase chemistry, uh, to put our materials down on the surface. And one of the first um, really awesome uh, observations that we made with our, with our technique was that we had incredible washability. So, uh -huh. so far we've done eight uh, repeated wash cycles in my washing machine at uh -huh. home and the conductivity doesn't change by more than about 5%, which is within the error of our measurement. And so you could wear it constantly, you could sweat um, in it, you can um, iron it too, um, or you could, again, as I mentioned, put it in a laundry machine and <laughs> nothing changes. Wow. I, me and Kathy both like we're like <laughs> iron, iron it, it. Like, wow. and I was like, well, I don't iron my clothes already, <laughs> so that's why it wouldn't happen. You have this, there's a lot of uh, formal wear opportunities there. <laughs> 
So if I wanted to buy like one of these things, could I just like go on the internet and buy it right now? Hopefully, yes. In about a year, when about our company gets up and running, okay. that we should be able to produce it um, in small scale. So, Will they be yeah. really pricey, or like our our goal is to have two price points: one at about thirty dollars, um, oh, wow. and then one at about eighty dollars, with a few more like rugged features for oh. sportswear, or you know, um, maybe if you want to customize it and stuff like that. So hopefully, there should be one at a price point that suits you. That so, seems really yeah. affordable. I was expecting. <laughs> Yeah, I was expecting something way more out there, personally. Yeah. So do you have a favorite among the things that you've designed? I, I feel like if I pick a favorite, I'm picking one of my students over another. <laughs> oh, okay. Uh, never. And, and, the, and the answer is yes, but it, it changes day by day. So my, uh, my answer is I usually have a project that is at the forefront or student that's at the forefront of my mind on a single day, and then it changes every day. So right now it's been the, the thermal, thermoelectric wristband because it's a – uh, project in a field that I personally as a scientist have never worked in and I um, had a student join my lab last year and she really wanted to do this this was her passion of like can I take advantage of body heat and generate a small amount of voltage and that's what a thermoelectric device is and so I'm like sure I, I don't know anything about this I don't know if we as heat sources generate enough power for this but you know go go nuts I don't see why this is a bad thing and in about a year, she made this little wristband that uh, generates about one volt, a uh, couple microwatts of power. Um, just in, uh, she measured this after our first Christmas snowstorm a couple months ago, and so that's really exciting. Cool. So that like someday might end up being like a phone that just charges that's from right. the heat of your body or that's something right. like that's that. That's right. Hopefully. That would really solve a lot of my a problems. <laughs> <laughs> I forget to charge my phone. <laughs> So what's the process like in your lab of developing these materials? Like, do you sit down and, like, sketch it up first? Like, how does that all go? I think typically lately what's been the case is we read. Uh, my students are very well read. Uh, uh, we read a problem in the world currently, and then we say, can, can our polymers solve that? And is there a way that actually putting these polymers on textiles would be better or worse or actually a solution as opposed to a degenerate idea that's mm. already out there. And so that's why we have such a range of things that we work on so we don't focus on a single device. It's just more about can textiles help you you know, better your life or something like that. And so it, it usually starts from the news or it starts from a, um, a person examining an existing device and saying, can I put it on a textile? And immediately me following up with, is there a need to put it on a textile? Uh, mm. And and then that's where we go. <laughs> Are there things like that have been rejected that we can talk about? Like what things like we don't need on textiles? But this is like kind of in the gray area, but um, someone I always get companies contacting me asking me if I could you know make an LED like a screen like a display mm -hmm. screen mm -hmm. on on textiles or on a fiber, and I'm I'm always like you know actually it's a little bit. It's hard to make that device. It's called a diode, um, and it basically um, does not act as a, just a simple conductor. And it tends to be a, a little bit of a process for us to make these things. And then if all I'm doing that for is to just light up, like, buy me or something like that, it's not worth my students' time. Mm. Uh, and so there's a lot of those kinds of things that get you know, just shut down in, in my lab because it's just like, well, you know, we are a lab. We're trying to, like, figure something out. Right. And uh, so the diode is also the component of a solar cell. And so we are working in that area of trying to put a full solar cell on a fiber because that is going to be useful. And it is a lot of work. And that's the one 
that's been our goal that we haven't made yet this one device that we haven't shown so far and to just make a you know a light up screen or a light up fabric that's we get that a lot and i'm always pushing people away saying i'm, I'm just not it's not worth the effort like right. just so i could you know light something up for you like you could just sew on some leds and just do the job <laughs> not need me to do this for you yeah yeah, you're like, that's a private, like, yeah. if you want to make an advertisement, yeah, that's like, like a business endeavor, not that's so much right. a scientific endeavor. Exactly. Right on. Yeah, you're working on a deeper level here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so in your lab, I'm curious, like, physically, like, what's the setup of your lab? Do you, are you do making these materials in your lab at yeah. UMass here? Yeah. So. so my lab is a very weird collection of things, and also we're <laughs> in temporary space right now. We're moving into a new building, so um. we're highly balkanized, which also creates a kind of culture, which is not great. But we have, and then on top of that, we have a ton of toys. We're just, we just have a lot of very sophisticated and also very unsophisticated toys. Um, and so we have parts of our, our lab that are uh, we call a fabrication center so these are usually clean room type things it's my own clean room that has ultra high vacuum processing equipment to put these electronic coatings down um, you have to wear bunny suits and so you don't have lint and you know body oils contaminating your space um, we have comparatively dirtier chambers that are just out in the bench tops um, that are just giant steel cubes where we do part of our processing and then in my students offices we literally have a tabletop loom um, like really? We, yeah, we oh, do. It's because cool. we weave our own fabrics, uh, and we have a, a bead loom because we embroider sometimes, and um, and so we have a very odd mixture of things um, around. So I think it's fun. And again, it just if a student, for example, uh, comes up and says, you know, I think we need to embroider something because then we could increase again for the speaker. I think you need to embroider it. So then we bought a, bought a little like flossing like uh, a scaffolding that's used to, you know, just do embroidery. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like those little circle things. That's right, yeah, like so we that recently bought like that. like to make like little <laughs> phrases or pictures. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. exactly. So we recently bought that. So you could, could you like have like a handmade, handwoven speaker? <laughs> that I think is going to be our, our first demonstration wow. of that. It's going to be, it is going to be hand uh, embroidered. Wow, so. that's really cool. It's like a real meeting of old and new. Yes, <laughs> like, yes. like, so what's the learning curve on some of this more arts and crafts stuff like for your students? They come in with these crazy scientific, impressive backgrounds, and uh, do they pick up the loom and the weave quite quickly, <laughs> or does it take a little bit of time? So that's also been a very interesting observation for me, just looking at people coming in. So the very first student who started this entire endeavor in my lab it was a single uh, electrical engineering student. And so we are focusing on the, the science of this, developing this technique again. And then after we showed the washability, and it was obvious that the next step was to just sew something, cut and sew. Uh, and so for her, <laughs> she, she bought a little uh, sewing machine from Amazon for our lab, and then she learned how to sew. Oh, wow. And so you know, she, it's just like 20-something electrical engineering uh, student. Uh, very, she's a, she's a, a, a woman. Um, and fighting all, all her life, and she, she was an immigrant, you know, so fighting all her life in a new country and in a highly male-dominated mm -hmm. field, right? And she's doing really great, 
And then she finds herself now like buying a sewing machine from Amazon <laughs> and then learning how to sew, um, which so is hilarious. And I, I, I think I wasn't the best advisor because I just laugh at her <laughs> supportively, but still I laugh at her. Um, but she, so that was her story. But then uh, my, a lot of the students I get at UMass, for example, the woman who made the thermoelectric glove that harvests your body heat to energy, she is a self-described grandma Mm-hmm. And so she has been knitting and crocheting all her life. And so <laughs> she came in and she came in from the exact opposite direction of wanting to find a way to use our technique with her love of crocheting. And so That's there was incredible. no learning curve there. Um, and then we uh, last summer we had an undergraduate student from RISD, the Rhode Island School of Design, contact us. And she is in a fabric arts uh, slash weaving program. That's her degree and she wanted to make something um, electronic with us. And so she spent, she was the one who bought our tabletop loom. And so again, she came oh. in with a pre-existing weaving knowledge. So we have a mixture of both. That's great. It sounds like there's either an opportunity to get all of your interests together or to have a complete identity crisis. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of hung up on this self-described grandma. Because yeah. <laughs> I thought a grandma was like a predetermined. Like, <laughs> I didn't know you could just like be like, I'm a grandma now. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure there are two big qualifications <laughs> to yeah. become a grandma. It takes a long time, I thought, but <laughs> I'm guessing it's the hobbies. It's a, the yes, it's a it's a cultural notation of, of her hobbies. So she likes she likes tea and knitting. Oh. Okay. <laughs> and it's important to say those are self described terms, so I'm not making a judgment on it. I think she's awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we all like grandmas. That's, that's right. right. <laughs> so I was joking about Project Runway. Have you ever watched Project Runway? I have. <laughs> I have. Because yeah. I feel like they would be down for a collaboration, <laughs> I probably. Think, I, think I so bet too. you could. I bet you could get your own episode of Project <laughs> Runway if you wanted I think, to. I think you're right. I think you're right. Are you gonna go for <laughs> it? <laughs> Maybe. Maybe. Okay. Yeah. It's, not, <laughs> I, it's not out of the realm of possibility. I would like this to happen. <laughs> You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. I'm your host, Laura Fabrousseau. My guests today are Dr. Tricia Andrew of the Chemistry Department and Dr. Spencer Hollowell of the Civil Engineering Department. And my co-host today is comedian Kathy Lynch. Jumping right back into it, I think we'll maybe shift gears now and talk to Spencer about his research. Okay. Um, so you want to just go ahead and tell us about what you Yeah, do? so I come from the field of structural reliability, and as you mentioned in the intro, I try to figure out how often things fail. And so my PhD research was on the structural failure of fixed-bottom offshore wind turbines, and that means wind turbines that are stuck to their foundations. And the research that I do now here at UMass is looking at the failure of um, multi-line floating offshore wind turbines. And so you can think of a a wind turbine essentially on a platform that floats in the middle of the ocean. And it's moored to the seafloor with anchors. And that's very expensive. And one of the uh, new proposed ideas from our research group is if you have an array of wind turbines, and usually they're in a farm of uh, dozens, if not up to 100 wind turbines, what if each of those platforms shared a a common anchor location? And so if you can manage to do that, then you can cut the number of anchors that you need to install. Um, It cuts down on material costs, installation costs, construction, fabrication, et cetera. So the overall cost of the offshore wind uh, wind farm decreases. 
Um, that introduces an interesting dynamic in the wind farm in that now you have this common point where you have interaction of forces in the wind farm. So turbine A pulls to the left, turbine B pulls to the right, and turbine C pulls straight up. And that means that that anchor is going to see forces coming in from different locations. And if turbine A all of a sudden goes away, whether it fails in a hurricane or you take it back into shore to service it, then that anchor, the forces on that anchor are changing significantly. And you now invite this uh, capability of failures progressing throughout the wind farm. So you can imagine taking one of your fabrics and ripping it down the middle, it's a progressive failure and it may follow a certain pattern. This failure can occur in, in this offshore wind farm in, a sa in the same way. And so that's what my research is, is to determine A, how likely that failure is to, to, to occur, B, um, what does that mean in the risk profile of the offshore wind farm from a structural sense, and C, what can we do as engineers to prevent this from occurring in case it does occur? So what design changes do we need to make so that this catastrophic failure doesn't occur throughout a wind farm? Yes. So uh, I apologize, I don't know anything about this, but. Are the current wind turbines that are um, on offshore locations right now, are they drilled to the seafloor or floating, as you mentioned? So all but, I believe, eight to 10 wind turbine, offshore wind turbines in the world are all fixed bottom. So just last year, two floating offshore wind turbines got put off the coast of Scotland. It's called the High Wind Stat Oil Project. Um, that was a big deal because it's kind of the first large scale uh, project that was put into place. It's generating electricity as we speak. Um, and then there are a few more pilot projects ar around the world that are floating offshore wind turbines. One uh, notable one is off of Fukushima. After the earthquake and tsunami happened, um, they decided to diversify their energy profile, and that including floating offshore wind. Um, because the water off the coast of Japan is very deep, they can't have these fixed bottom uh, founded offshore wind turbines. Uh -huh. So they have to have these floating ones that have chains and, and cables and anchors down to the seafloor because um, that's the most cost effective way to to install a wind turbine in deep water. Even if you have shallow water, as since you mentioned Japan, where you're kind of in the ring of fire and you have plate motion, so would this also be a reason to have these floating things so you can almost just compensate for yeah. uh, plate tectonics? Yeah, so wind turbines are kind of an interesting structure in that they're very tall and they're very slender. And so in structural engineering, we like to simplify things down as much as we possibly can. And one of the ways we do that um, for buildings or bridges is we try to make them into what we call lollipop structures. So you can imagine a really slender stick with a big heavy mass on top. And the way that that vibrates in say an earthquake is very predictable. And so wind turbines are interesting in that they actually look like a lollipop in a way in that they're on very long slender towers and they have a big heavy mass at the top where the machinery and the, and the rotor are. And so earthquakes are actually easy to control and design for, relatively easy. Uh, compared to wind and waves because it's it's a pretty predictable motion and we've known for a long time now in the field how to predict those motions and analyze the wind turbines or structures in general under earthquake loading. Now one of the other things that I'm researching are hurricanes and hurricane induced wind and wave effects on offshore wind turbines. That's much more difficult to, pr to predict because waves are highly dynamic, highly irregular, they're constantly occurring in the offshore environment whereas an earthquake is kind of this one-time event. So offshore wind turbines suffer from fatigue effects when you have the, the structure vibrating back and forth for 20 years in some cases um, due to the wave and the winds that that's going to build up stresses and potentially cause failures. And then um, currently offshore of the United States there are only a handful of wind turbines installed off of Block Island. 
one of the concerns about installing wind turbines in the United States is hurricanes because in offshore Europe, they don't get hurricanes like we do here in the United States. That would be a very rare type of storm. But as we saw last year during the hurricane season here in the United States, we had a handful of category five hurricanes in the Atlantic Basin. And so there's a lot of research going into determining what happens if an offshore wind farm gets struck by a hurricane. And some of the effects of, of these hurricanes coming up the coast is you have very high wave heights. Uh, I'm dealing with wave heights in the tens of meters sometimes on these structures. And so if you can imagine being on the beach and thinking, oh, that's a really high wave, that's probably on the order of one to three meters tall. And I'm talking about 15 meter wave heights on these structures. So these are really big waves causing really big forces on really big structures. And so it's, it's difficult to understand what the reliability of these things are because they don't exist in this country yet. And so we don't have a lot of data on how they actually perform. So you said there's only one set of wind turbines off the coast of the U.S. Mm -hmm. right now, Block Island? Yes. Where is yeah. that? So Block Island's off the coast of Rhode Island. Okay. And it was kind of an interesting project because it's in state waters. And right now, the political mm -hmm. climate for offshore wind in a lot of the locations, you have to get buy-in from many different agencies. Oh. Uh, environmental Protection Agency, uh, offshore agencies like NOAA. You have to have the federal government approve your project. You have to have the local state government approve your project. You have to have local power buying agencies approved. So in some cases, you'll have dozens of different agencies um, that you have to get approval for for installing offshore wind turbines. Block Island was advantageous because it's located entirely in state waters. So they didn't have to answer to many of the federal agencies that you typically would. So that was kind of a fast track project and they got in at the, at the right time. And also Block Island's an interesting location because they used to get all their electricity from a diesel generator. And so these offshore wind turbines provide another source of electricity. And in part of the agreement, they built a cable connection between the island and the mainland where any of the excess electricity that isn't being used on the island then gets shipped back to the mainland and sold to the grid. Um, so it was, a, it was kind of a perfect storm combination of things that allowed Block Island to uh, actually get built. And it's been a success, I think, so far. So people live on Block Island? Yeah, I don't know what percentage of the of the population lives year round. It's a pretty popular vacation destination, okay. just like the Vineyard or, or uh -huh. Nantucket. Um, but I, I would say that probably 10 to 15% of the people live year round where they okay. need electricity. There's, I guess I've heard of kind of a famous uh, wind energy project that got like shot down off Martha's Vineyard, right? Is that? Yeah, so Cape Wind. Cape Wind. Um, yeah, we don't like to talk about that very oh, much. Okay, <laughs> sorry yeah, for bringing up a sore point. That was one of the point. examples of how not to, to do things. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, it's, it's a good example of how when you have all of these different players in this type of development, how difficult it really is. Uh, you have to convince everybody that this is the right thing to be doing. And like you said in your case, um, sometimes the best answer to a project is to not do it because you don't need it. And for Cape Wind, it turned out that that was the best answer. Mm. Um, it just wasn't an inviting climate to, to build an offshore wind farm at the time. Were you able to get a vacation on Block Island? As well? <laughs> so that's one of my uh, one of the difficulties in my research and kind of interesting. I've never seen an offshore wind turbine before. Oh, now I, I've wow. been to Newport in Rhode Island, and I went on the cliff walk there, and I looked out into the ocean, and on the very very edge of the horizon, you can see these little white dots, and I so I guess I've seen them in that sense, but I've never been up, in, <laughs> up close and personal with yeah. an offshore wind turbine. Oh. And that's one of the difficult things in our research, too, is if we want to go into a lab and test the performance of these things, we obviously can't put a 100-meter-tall 
eight meter diameter <laughs> structure in any lab because none of these labs exists on that scale. So we have to try to scale down these experiments and even the scaled experiments are big. Uh, currently we have an experiment going on in Oregon State University. They have a large wave tank and we are looking at breaking waves on cylinders because a lot of the structures that are built for offshore wind turbines are cylinders welded together. And it's difficult even at that scale to make everything work. One of our load sensors uh, that we were planning on using for our breaking wave tests actually wasn't strong enough for the loads that we were going to be seeing during the tests. Mm. So in some of the first tests that we were doing, we were kind of crossing our fingers and, and hoping that we weren't going to break some of our equipment because the, the forces are so high on these structures. Mm. Um, yeah, that's, one, that's a difficulty. So when you mentioned the floating wind turbines, I'm just picturing, like, like how much do they move around? I'm just picturing they're attached to these chains. What if they all get tangled together? Is that yeah. a concern? Yeah, so that's definitely a concern, um, especially if things start failing, right? Because now you have a, a wind turbine drifting. And mm. uh, when everything is connected and working the way it's supposed to, uh, they drift on the order of maybe 5 to 10 meters, okay. which is actually pretty low. So. The mooring lines that we're talking about that are connected to the bottom of the ocean are 70 millimeters in diameter. Now, that may not seem like a lot, but they're solid steel. Solid steel chains, very heavy links. So the links themselves may weigh between 15 kilogram, 50 to 100 kilograms a piece. And then you have a kilometer, essentially, of chain connecting down to the seabed. So you have thousands and thousands of pounds holding this floating structure in place. Now, as you said, if, uh, if we cut one of those lines, now the wind turbine can drift. And that's definitely a concern, is if the wind turbine drifts in the path of other mooring lines, it's going to drag and potentially uproot that anchor and you can get this cascading effect that we've been worried about. There are, there are examples of, in the Gulf of Mexico, hurricanes passing by uh, oil and gas platforms that are also floating and they get dragged, sometimes tens to hundreds of miles off course because of hurricane winds and waves. So that's a very bad issue to have. You have these large structures floating long distances that can crash into each other. So you so you talked about the phys there's physical modeling of the processes mm -hmm. involved. Do you also do like computer simulations of the stresses or? Yeah. yeah. So I think I would say at least ninety percent of the work that we do on our research team is virtual models of these offshore wind turbines. So we have a research suite. And we're trying to model as many of the physics as we can on the offshore wind turbine. The aerodynamics, the hydrodynamics, the structural dynamics, um, all built into one program. And we do hours and hours of simulations of different wind and wave conditions on the wind turbines to kind of understand their performance and essentially build a profile of what we think is going to happen. And there are tests, the benchmark tests in, in the physical world that we can uh, match our results from the computer simulations to to make sure that the results that we're getting aren't garbage because a lot of times with computer modeling garbage in gives you garbage out and if you don't have a phys physical benchmark to compare to you don't know if it's garbage or not so luckily we do we have both the uh, analysis program suite has been built for us which is great because structural engineers aren't that great at computer science and we also have the physical world to test our benchmarks against and um, it's been very convenient as a researcher to have those pieces, those tools built for us before uh, jumping right in. How are the how are the power lines connected to these things, whether they're floating or you know anchored to the floor? Mm -hmm. So the typical layout would be um, in all cases you have the cabling goes essentially straight down to the seafloor, and if it's floating, then they'll likely be ballasted to the seafloor, 
and if it's a fixed bottom wind turbine, they go down through a piece of tubing that's connected to the structure. Once it reaches the seafloor, it will then, um, in almost all of the cases, go to a substation that is also in the ocean. And it, that substation could either be floating or fixed as well. And that substation converts the electricity to then be uh, shipped back onshore. And the idea for, for offshore wind, at least in this country and in a lot of locations in Europe, is these offshore uh, wind farms are located near population centers. So ideally in the United States, offshore wind developments will happen in locations close to Boston, close to New York City, mm. close to Philadelphia, where you have large population centers and also where you already have power plants located at the mouths of rivers for cooling purposes, where these cables coming from the substations can build into the, the electricity network that already exists onshore. I'm curious how um, how these things are installed. Do people, are they like scuba diving to install it? Or do they use submarines? Like yeah, so the installation vessels for these structures are really cool because they're very large vessels. Okay. They have to carry these very heavy pieces of steel. Right. And for the majority of fixed-based wind turbines that are called monopiles, and so you can imagine just a pole stuck in the ground, um, you sometimes have what are called lift barges. And so you'll ship the structure out on top of a lift barge. The barge will put feet down into the ocean and then it will lift itself up above the surface of the water. So the barge itself will actually be in the air hovering above the ocean so that it's not affected by the waves. And then they drop the pile in place and they actually essentially smash it or vibrate it into the ground. And so mm. you have either pile driving equipment or you have vibration equipment which will force this pole into the ground and then you start stacking the structure on top of that. Okay, and yeah. so it's one of the big advantages of the floating ones that you don't have to do as much of this like intensive labor to... Yes, exactly. So for floating offshore wind, you can, you can do what's called uh, installation quayside. And so you can build the entire structure essentially on shore, either in a dry dock or right next to the pier where the construction is occurring. Uh, once construction is complete, you can float the entire structure out to site mm -hmm. with a couple of tugboats, uh, attach the mooring lines, and you're good to go. So mm. installation potentially can be easier for floating offshore wind if you do it in an intelligent way. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So how should I pronounce it if I want to impress people? Wind turbine or wind turbine? Oh, uh, <laughs> I think uh, a lot of people would say, actually, you should call them wind energy converters. Oh. Um, <laughs> I, I hear it both ways. Yeah. Have I, I may have even said it both ways in this talk. <laughs> yeah, I've, just, I've just heard both. I was curious. Yeah, I have to catch myself. Sometimes I'll, I'll go either way. It, it can be confusing. So this isn't, this isn't divisive in the wind, wind energy no, sector? No, actually, you know, I may start bringing that up at conferences to see. There may be different factions. I might, I might cause a schism in the offshore wind community. Mm. I think you should just start a new pronunciation, like turbine or something oh. like that. <laughs> turbine. Turbine. See how weirdly you can pronounce it before people start to give you trouble for it. <laughs> Is there, are there any like locations in the U.S. that you're prospecting like really to try to build one of these? Yeah, so uh, the federal government has set aside designated locations off the coast of the United States, uh, designated wind energy areas, they mm -hmm. call them. And they're tracts of land, and they're kind of peppered along the entire coast. Uh, the first one in the northeast is Massachusetts Wind Energy Area, and it's a large tract of land. There's one off the two, actually, now off of the coast of New York, there are some in New Jersey, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, and the Carolinas. 
And so those are locations where uh, companies can lease a parcel of land and they're designated for locations where you can go test offshore wind technology oh. or install a, um, a power generating facility. And so that's kind of the first step in the development processes, starting designating these locations offshore because uh, before wind energy started being a big player in the United States, a lot of the development offshore was just focused towards uh, oil and gas research and, and extraction. And so the same firm or the same uh, federal agency that uh, organizes oil and gas extraction, the Bureau of Ocean and Energy Management, uh, also controls these wind energy areas as well because they're in the in the energy control business offshore. So are, do you work with um, people who specialize in climate at all, or are you thinking about the potential impacts of climate change on forecasting the conditions that wind turbines will be? Yeah, so we get that question a lot, especially because we deal with hurricanes. Mm -hmm. And the consensus is a little unclear as to how climate change is going to affect uh, at least the hurricane climate. Yeah. Um, a lot of people say you're going to get more intense storms, uh, but fewer storms in general. Some mm -hmm. people uh, think that we're going to get more storms overall. Um, hurricanes are really interesting processes in that uh, one hurricane can really affect how a second hurricane develops because these hurricanes are essentially energy extractors that take energy from the equator and bring it up towards the poles. And it does so by sapping all of the warm water out of the ocean. And if you have one really big, strong hurricane sapping a lot of warm water from the ocean, that makes it way less likely for the next hurricane to be able to develop along that track. And so even though global warming predicts that ocean temperatures are going to rise significantly, uh, that may mean that a few strong hurricanes actually make fewer small hurricanes capable of developing. Mm. Now, the overall climate change effect on wind energy profiles I think that's a really difficult thing to predict. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's research out there trying to understand that, how that's going to work. Um, but for our research, we really care about what the extreme events are doing. Because mm -hmm. from a reliability issue, we want to know when things fail. And typically things fail when bad things are happening. And so things like uh, downburst micro like micro thunderstorms, tornadoes, hurricanes, rogue waves, breaking waves, are all the types of effects that we look at. And since those are kind of on the fringe and uh, very rare occurrences, it's very difficult for climate models to predict these very uh, rare weather events. In specific, kind yeah. of. What's a rogue wave? So a rogue wave happens when a lot of waves essentially pile on top of each other mm -hmm. and interact. So if you can imagine one sine wave is just this really nice uh, uh, profile, and then you can throw another sine wave on top of it, and another one and another one, and you can have the waves interact in a way where the ocean can be perfectly flat for many miles. And then in the middle of the ocean, you have a wave that is tens of meters high. And so these rogue waves have been recorded uh, by ships off offshore. And some people don't believe that they actually exist. But you can actually reproduce them in a lab. And a lot of the, the ship captains and sailors say that these things happen and they're a really big deal. And so it's difficult to predict when they're going to happen because uh, they're rare occurrences and they happen during relatively calm sea states. Wow. Um, there's one other thing. Oh, I thought about, um, have you heard of or interacted with this concept of like the, the, um, in, the in the vein of people being opposed to wind energy? Um, the like disease that people think they get from being near wind turbines? Yeah, so that's really interesting. Um, people do get sick from wind turbines being nearby. Now, 
I think the majority of uh, the experts on the subject will say that there's actually no physical cause of their sickness, that it's actually caused by the nocebo effect. And the nocebo effect is when you tell somebody you are going to be hurt or you are going to feel pain or you're going to get sick and you tell them enough times and you do it from a source of authority, even though you're not even touching them or affecting them in any physical way, their brain actually does cause them pain or get them sick. And so one famous example of the nocebo effect is actually researching this effect is difficult, right? Because to get funding to cause harm to a person is really difficult to get. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> doctors got funding to do research for women who were going into labor when they were getting a, an injection to get pain-killing drugs. The doctors were allowed to then say to some women, this is going to hurt a lot. This is going to hurt very, very much. And then in the control population, they didn't say anything. And in the other population, they said, this is just going to be a little pinch. And the women that they said, you're going to feel a lot of pain when they rated their pain levels was significantly higher than the women that they didn't say anything at all. And then the women that you, they told, you're not going to feel very much pain, didn't feel very much pain. Mm. And the same thing they think is happening for this wind turbine sickness is you have all of these people, lobbyist groups, people that just don't want it in their backyard are saying, the infrasound waves are going to make me sick and all of the electricity is going to make you sick and you have a strobe effect and all of these things. Even though those things may not be occurring, people are getting sick from it. Mm. And so it's, an, it's difficult to combat fictitious reasons for being sick because yeah. what do you do about it other than educate people about what's really going on? Right. Wow. Yeah. yeah, I think I had read about that and they said that they were, the, the article I read really dismissed it because it said that the spread of the disease correlated with the spread of information about the disease, exactly. right? That, yeah. yeah, people only got sick with it once they yeah. had heard that it was a possibility. And it's re it's it is it spreads like a virus, and it's really interesting the psychology behind it because you can have communities that have wind turbines where there were no opposition and no one gets sick, but then you have communities where there was lots of opposition, opposition, and everyone gets sick. It's kind of disturbing, actually. It's a kind bit. of troubling to think that. Yeah. It just goes to show like how much influence you can have on someone just by telling them things. Yeah. It's, it's weird. Sounds like a Black Mirror episode or something. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we'll have to send a suggestion. Yeah. yeah. Wind turbines. So. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think we're about ready uh, to move on to the last segment of our show, which is a game that I invented called GTA. Guess that acronym. <laughs> <laughs> in which I, uh, our, our guests have provided me with some acronyms from their, their disciplines, and we'll have Kathy Lynch, our comedian co-host, try to guess what they are. All right. <laughs> How are you off. feeling, Kathy? Are you ready? Uh, yep, feeling pretty good about this. <laughs> okay, our first acronym is OWT. OWT. Oh, why this game? Is <laughs> 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 clearly what that stands for. <laughs> Does anybody want to jump in and tell us what it stands for? It's offshore wind turbine. Oh, okay, great. We've been talking about that <laughs> for a while now. I should have gotten that. <laughs> this is just so the point of this game is to kind of, you know, in the sciences, we use acronyms to communicate a lot because it makes things easier. Although maybe we don't know it, <laughs> but um, but it can make it really inaccessible when we're talking to people who aren't from our even from our small subfield. Mm -hmm. Like I wouldn't know what OWT is, even though you know, yeah. Okay, our next acronym is 
hot. H A W T. Horses and whales together. <laughs> Perfect harmony. <laughs> I'm just picturing like a horse on top of a whale. <laughs> I was thinking of quite a, beautiful. a horse like running alongside the ocean and the whale's like, hey, man, nice. <laughs> we're different, but we're together. <laughs> no, this is a little less exciting. Uh, it's horizontal axis wind turbine. And oh. so that's the vast majority of wind turbines that you see are spinning on the horizontal axis, whereas you can have a vertical axis turbine, which is spinning, hmm, this uh -oh. is difficult to explain over the radio, uh, <laughs> spinning along just the vertical axis. So, imagine so it would be like facing up yeah, instead so of facing to the side? Right. You know how a flag spins around a flagpole to change direction. A, a vertical axis wind turbine will, would spin in, in oh. the same way. Interesting. What, what situations do they use those vertical axis wind turbines? So, uh, the only one that I've seen, they're uncommon, and the only one I've seen is on top of the Prudential Center in Boston, and actually one of them just broke due to one of the blizzards they had oh, no. over the last month. So is that somewhere where you have like an updraft or something? Yeah, so typically they're smaller because they, uh, they take up less space, so in a place like a city on top of a building, it's uh, much more beneficial, whereas okay. the horizontal axis ones are bigger in wingspan than a 747 jet. So you need a lot of space, a lot yeah. of open space to have one of those types. Okay, and our last acronym is OLED or O-L-E-D. All right, I think we're gonna get a little dark here, but that stands for Old Lady Entices Death. <laughs> oh. <laughs> wow, <laughs> that did get dark. Yeah. <laughs> Remember these are science acronyms. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy's just wasting it up, right? Yeah, yeah, let's you know, mix things up. Right? <laughs> uh, do you want to jump in and let us no. know what that means? It's an organic light-emitting diode. Oh, okay, uh. that's a lot nicer. <laughs> no death involved, ideally. So those are what you were saying we use on touch screens? Or? Yeah, so if you have a Samsung or LG phone, your screen is an OLED screen. Um, or if you buy one of the fancy newer TVs, they're all OLED TVs. Oh, very cool. What makes it organic? It's made of... Carbon? Uh, it ma it's made out of dyes that are largely carbon-based as opposed to uh, metal-based or oxide-based conductors. So it's uh, a lot of the times that the dyes that are used to literally dye plastics a color are actually the electronic components in the screen. Oh, interesting. Okay, well, I think that's the end of our show. Thank you so much for joining me, uh, tr uh, Trisha and Spencer and Kathy. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Thanks for having us. Cool. You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst, hosted by yours truly, Laura Federuso. Our guests today were Dr. Trisha Andrew and Dr. Spencer Hollowell. My co-host was comedian Kathy Lynch. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Uh, support for online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is provided by the Emmerich Lab in the Polymer Science Department. You can check out Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook, SoundCloud, or subscribe on iTunes. Please let us know what you like, what you don't like, what you want to hear more about. Please stick around for WMUA News coming right up.